Brethren, as we look at the world today, it looks like it's in flames. I was looking at <clears throat> some articles here from different sources. One of them is the Spanish newspaper, and they give a short, a short uh, synthesis of the war in Syria, for example. It says, before the war, 20 million people lived in Syria. Of all of them, at least 278,000 have died. Six million have crossed the border to go somewhere else as pilgrims, as migrants without a home. And another seven million have abandoned their homes to move to another part of the country where there is less war, less conflict. That's a short synthesis of the tragedy of war, my friends. I have here also from Wikipedia, major wars, ongoing wars, have been the history of humankind is written with blood. When you read the history of any nation, the main dates are a days where there was a lot of bloodshed. In each country, I don't want to give too many examples, but there are many, the 4th, the 7th of August was the national independence in Colombia after war, after a battle called the Battle of Boyacá, who gave finally independence to Colombia from Spain. And you look in history, that's what you find. The University of Oslo in Norway and the Academy of Science, they made a research. They went up to the year 3,500 before Christ, and they were counting all the wars they could document until today, 14,000 wars. Brethren, that's why I deeply appreciated the sermonette, because we're going to seize one of the foundational steps to the way of peace. I read you just a little bit here from major wars right now. It seems in every, it seems, no, in every continent there are conflicts. Every continent. Almost every nation. In Afghanistan, the conflict started in 1978. I think it was when the Russians invaded. And so far, there have been cumulative fatalities in Afghanistan since 1978, and the war is still going on. You know that. That would be 1,240,000 deaths just in one country, Afghanistan. And I won't read all the details for the Mexican drug war, that's right here next door to us, is 115,000 115, fatalities. The Syrian civil war, 570,000 fatalities. The Yemen crisis, Yemen civil war, is all mixed there, is a real chaos. Al-Qaeda insurgency in Yemen, South Yemen 
insurgency, Saudi-Yemeni border conflict, Saudi Arabian-led intervention in Yemen, 60,000, 223,000 fatalities. And that war is still going on. And they call it the worst, uh, the worst, how can I say, crisis nowadays is right there in Yemen. I read just a few more, and I won't read you the whole rest. It's, it's all over Africa, Asia. Here is, is there's another one: Somali civil war. Five hundred thousand cumulative fatalities, half a million in one country in Africa. There is the communal conflicts in Nigeria, 17,000 fatalities. Iraq conflict, which was started by the invasion of the United States, 288,000. Seems unbelievable to me. Maybe <clears throat> we have to qualify some of these. Boko Haram insurgency in Nigeria, 51,000 fatalities. Ethnic violence in South Sudan, 400,000. It's still going on. Libyan crisis, 29,000. Brethren, well, I'm going to read to you. And here we have, from the latest magazine, The Week, dated uh, August 16, 2019, white nationalism, America's growing terrorist threat. Right here. We don't know how close we can be right here in Charlotte to this. We've seen the results. You have heard the news. I don't need to repeat them recently. There is a trade war with China. A trade war is the precursor of a war with weapons. That's how, that was the precursor of the Second World War. Every historian knows that, that the Great Depression of 1929 was the precursor of the Second World War. I won't, go, I won't go into all the details because it's not my purpose today to make an analysis of the reasons for it. I'm just mentioning what we should go, if you please, I invite you to go with me, dear brethren, to the epistle of the Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 3, that you know very well. Romans chapter 3, we read, In chapter 3, verse 9 of the book of Romans. What then? Are we better than they? Not at all. For we have previously charged both Jews and Greeks that they are all under sin. As it is written, there is none righteous. No, not one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks after God. They have all gone out of the way. They have together become unprofitable. There is none who does good. No, 
not one. Their throat is an open tomb. With their tongues, they have practiced deceit. We see that, brethren, in all these, you know, media, media, Facebook, and all the Internet is full of this type of material that we see described here. Their throat is an open tomb. The man who made this killing in El Paso, he used to spend eight hours a day before his computer visiting these hatred sites. That's how you give room to the devil. The Apostle Paul says, don't give room to the devil. He is a murderer. And people wonder, and we know what's behind all these killings. In most of those cases, they are speaking a lot of mentally ill people. In most of those cases, they are demon-possessed people. And we have plenty of proof that what, that what happened to the Church of God in Wisconsin was for someone who gave room to the devil, and a demon gets in under the orders of Satan the devil, the murderer from the beginning. And they are led by the demon and go to kill. And the psychologists, of course, and politicians, they do not understand that. Why is so frequent in America? Of course, there is an easy access to weapons, but there are many people giving room to the devil. I was surprised once I have to pick up my son from school in Ramona, California. And then we went to a store about digital stuff. And many of his friends from school, this is a few years ago, were sitting there in front of computers practicing and killing people. And you hear the sound of the shots, and you see people falling down on the screen. When you spend hours and hours doing that, and you start reading material of hatred, you are giving room to the devil. And soon enough, a demon will get inside there, and this person will go, led by a demon, kill people, and when he kills himself, or the police kill him, the demon comes out and goes looking for another one who is ready to accept him. He has given room to the devil. Our fight is not against flesh and blood. It's against hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. They go around flying, looking for someone who is ready to be possessed. Of course, there are many disgruntled young people who, you know, I cannot go into the analysis of their, but the real root of the problem is the destruction of the family. They grow up without a father, grow up without a mother, or someone who is a real good example. They are lost in life. They don't have anyone to guide them, and they fall into this trap. And that's what we're seeing. So there are people like that in all of the world, all of the world. But here it's easy to get possessed and find a weapon and go and kill people. And Satan is a murderer from the beginning. That's what's behind that. They don't understand. Yesterday I was listening to a broadcast. They say, but why is it that people are doing that now? It wasn't that way in the 70s. Of course, now there is more of the disintegration of the family 
Those young people are more and more exposed to the influence of the prince of the power of the air. And they are giving room to it by the games they play, by the things they read, by the sites that visit, cultivating this until the door is open. And it's easy for a demon to get in there and push them to go to kill people. It's very simple explanation. We have it more clear than everybody else outside there because they don't believe in these things. We know there is an invisible world. It's a big threat, brethren. So I was reading this, and Paul was citing from, uh, from the book of Isaiah. The throat is an open tomb. This is Romans 3.13. With their tongues, they have practiced deceit. That's exactly what the devil is, the great deceiver. The poison of asps is under their lips. They are filled with this spirit of hatred, whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. They are angry, angry young people. It's understandable, but it's not justifiable, dear brethren. Their feet are swift to shed blood. That is the description of what we are living here in this country. Destruction and misery are in their ways. And the way of peace they have not known. That's where I felt the sermonette was an inspired introduction. He spoke of peacemakers, Mr. Ryan Dawson. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Brethren, the church of God is being judged now. God is judging us. Let's look at First Peter chapter 4. First Peter chapter 4 and verse 17. First Peter 4.17. For the time has come for judgment to begin at the house of God. God is judging us because we have been called to practice the way of peace right now when the world does not know it and be qualified to teach that way of life to the whole world. If we are not practicing the way of peace right now, we will not be qualified to rule with the king of peace. That's an essential qualification. That's where in, the, in Revelation 20 verse 4 it says, I saw throne in those that were given authority to judge. Because they qualified to be the helpmeet of the king of peace. What is the way of peace, brethren? One crucial element was mentioned today by Mr. Ryan Dawson. is to be able to ask for forgiveness. Do you think these world leaders from Korea or from America or from where would go and say, please, will you? I'm sorry. That doesn't happen, brethren. That simple part is not that simple as we saw. We go forward. 
So the time has come for the judgment to begin at the house of God. What is the house of God? The church of the living God. That's the living church of God. And those that still have the Holy Spirit, wherever they are, we're being judged now, brethren. God wants to know if we're qualified or not. So how, what is that way of peace? You know, when the Apostle Peter went to the house of Cornelius, he said that Jesus Christ came preaching the gospel of peace, the good news. I'm sorry it translates him in the King James, or the New King James doesn't say that, but when you look at the margin, that's what it means. He came preaching the gospel of peace. That means the good news of peace. That was what Christ was preaching. The main thrust of his preaching was that. Because he's the prince of peace called that way in Isaiah chapter 9. And the king of peace translated by the apostle Paul in Hebrews chapter 7. So, how do we know what's the way of peace? Of course, it's here in the Bible. Well, I'm going to propose to you, brethren, I do not pretend to exhaust the subject. The Word of God is a living Word. It's inexhaustible. And when you study it, it's like a diamond. It shines in many ways. Today, with the help of God, we're going to see some practical applications not just theory. How can we apply the way of peace in our daily lives and be qualified to rule the world? And it's very interesting, brethren. If you see a proof of that, let's read for a moment before we start with this. Several elements that constitute that we can describe as the way of peace. In Isaiah chapter 2, you know, this crucial prophecy that we quote over and over when, the, when we preach mainly at the Feast of Tabernacles, we preach about this good news, and we preach and we speak about Isaiah chapter 2 and verse 2. Now it shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the Lord's house, do you hear that? The mountain of the Lord's house, let's keep reading, that means a kingdom, shall be established on the top of the mountains and shall be exalted above the hills. And all nations shall flow to it. Many people shall come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob. What is the house of the God of Jacob, brethren? First Timothy chapter 3, verse 15. You can go down quickly. So we are clearly here declared to be in charge in that mountain to teach people because after what they say. Anyway, I won't go to that scripture. You know what it is. Paul writes to Timothy and says, I want you to know how to behave in the church of God who is the, in the house of God, who is the pillar and bulwark of the truth, who is the church of the living God. 
So people are going to come to the house of the God of Jacob. What's that house? We are that house. So we have to be qualified to teach what he says right after that. He will teach us his ways. Well, the last thing he says, to the house of the God of Jacob. We'll be one with him. We'll be married to the Prince of Peace. We'll be one with him. Come and let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the Lord of Jacob. He will teach us his ways. It's in singular, because we will be one with him. We'll be part of it. And we shall walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall forth, shall go forth the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He shall judge between the nations and shall rebuke many people. All these conflicts, brethren, Christ is going to stop them. He, and we will have the power to stop them because we have already practiced the way they never knew. And we will be qualified if we are there to teach them. It says, and shall rebuke many people. They shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation shall not lift up sword against nation. And I have here and many other articles counting the conflicts that are going on right now on the face of the earth in every continent. Neither shall they lean war, learn war anymore. That will be our task. So let's ask ourselves, brethren, I think there are many ways to find a way of peace, but one that is very important is something that has had the most impact even in the world that is not the world of the true religion of Jesus Christ. I'm talking of the Beatitudes. Let's try to see there, and if God, God permits in the time, to see how Christ described, and I, I mentioned at the beginning, I, not, I do not pretend to, to exhaust the subject, because even some of these translations can be translated somewhere, some other way, and they are legitimate translations, and they open the way for many applications of these words that Jesus Christ pronounced. So let's read chapter 5 of the book of Matthew, and verse 1. And seeing the multitudes, he went up on a mountain, and when he was seated, his disciples came to him. Then he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed, and is happy, are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Why did he mention this as number one? The poor in spirit. Let's let the Bible interpret what that means. What he was referring to. Without this attitude of characteristic, there cannot be peace. It's the foundation of peace. It's to be poor in spirit. What does it mean? Well, let's go to Isaiah chapter 57 and let the Bible explain itself. Isaiah chapter 57. 
he says, this is so beautiful, brethren, 57 verse 15, Isaiah, for thus says the high and lofty one who inhabits eternity, he never had a beginning, he will never have an end. There is no other being in the universe with those characteristics as Jesus Christ and the Father. They had no beginning. Many, will, like us, will receive eternal life. But we had a beginning. Although the Spirit that is given to us, the Holy Spirit coming directly from the Father, with His essence, is the eternal. That Spirit has always existed. That's an interesting thing to think about. We receive the Holy Spirit. It's a piece of eternity that has always been there in the loins of our Father. For thus says the high and lofty one who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy. I dwell in the high and holy place. And there are other translations that add a little word very important here. And with him who has a contrite and humble spirit. That's an amazing thing. God inhabits eternity. He inhabits the third heaven, the lofty places. And he said, I don't only dwell up there. I also dwell with the contrite in spirit, with the poor. He says, with the humble spirit to revive the spirit of the humble. You know, Christ, God is humble, brethren. How come the God who sits in the throne of the universe, in the third heaven, can come also to inhabit with a person that has a contrite spirit. That's a repentant person. Repentance is an act of humility. Humility is the cornerstone of the way of peace. How do we know that? What was the first disturbance in the history of the universe? What caused that first disturbance? What caused the first conflict? The Bible is very clear. I can make more explanation about this. And to revive the heart of the contrite ones. That's poor in spirit. And uh, when you read chapter 14 of the book of John, you, you find the proof of this statement that was inspired to Isaiah. In the book of John, chapter 14, let's read that, which is just amazing. It's just beautiful. In chapter 14... Verse 23 of the book of John. Let's read verse 22. Judas, not Iscariot, said to him, Lord, how is it that you will manifest yourself to us and not to the world? It's not yet the time, of course. But God has a way to manifest himself in a very intimate, profound, changing way to the first fruits that will learn the way of peace because they have repented, because they are poor in spirit, because they have a contrite spirit. God resists the proud and gives his grace to the humble. Brethren, I don't pretend to have achieved this yet. I still have pride. I know that, and I have to fight against it. 
But like Paul says in Philippians 3.13, I won't go to all those scriptures, I leave what's behind and go forward to the fulfillment of that purpose that God has for us. And he says, Judas asks him, how come you will manifest to us? Look, reason to this. We respond to how it's possible that God lives in the third heaven, in the lofty place, and will the poor and contrite of spirit. Then it says, Jesus answered and said to him, if anyone loves me, that means to obey me. You know that. He will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him. You know, someone who really repents and is baptized and receives the Holy Spirit becomes a temple of the presence of God, of the Spirit of God who dwells in him. So it's just an amazing thing to think that the most holy and majestic God comes to live in the heart of us when we really humble ourselves and are, have a contrite spirit. Then he forgives us. So, what was the cause of the first conflict ever? Let's read it. You know this. I want to go through that quickly. Chapter 28 of the book of Ezekiel. Chapter 28, speaking of Lucifer, we read, You were perfect in all your ways from the day you were created till iniquity was found in you. What was that iniquity? By the abundance of your trading. And this, Mr. Armstrong used to say to us, and you find it in some Bibles, trading is gossip, campaigning with lies and slander. He was convincing one-third of the angels that God was not fair, that they deserve a better treatment after all what was given to them. By the abundance of your trading, and you see the politicians, how they, they work, trying to undermine the other one to exalt themselves and to be appointed to power. You became filled with violence within you and sinned. Therefore, I cast you as a profane thing out of the mountain of God and destroyed you, a covering cherub, from the midst of the fiery stones. Your heart was lifted up. There it is. Pride is the opposite of having or being a poor in spirit. And that's why we have a week of unleavened bread year after year, because we tend to have a higher concept of ourselves than we ought to have. And that week remembers us, reminds us. Get real. Have a grasp of reality. We're dust of the earth. But the mercy of the one who lives and dwells in the lofty places were being called to a great purpose. But it has to start with humility, with repentance. That's why he says, blessed are this poor in spirit, because the kingdom of heaven is theirs. Because the one who perturbed the peace became proud. Pride is a deception. Satan, the devil, is deceived. He has a concept of himself higher than it should be. 
And when we think that way, he thought he qualified to sit in the throne of God, and he provoked the first conflict in the history of the universe. And we're seeing the same story over and over here on earth. To be a peacemaker, that Mr. Ryan described to us, it takes humility. It takes the courage to say, I was wrong. I am sorry. Pride will never acknowledge that. And you know how to know if we are proud. The formula is very simple. I call it a high-tech because we get, you get the clear result. How do we respond to correction? Proverbs chapter 9, I'll go to all those scriptures because I have much material to cover with the help of God. I cannot be go over time. Mr. Weston said, Mario, I have my spies. So, anyway. Your heart was lifted up. That means swollen. With lemon. Pride. He put himself in the place of God. He broke the first commandment. He thought he was qualified because he was deceived by his own concept of himself that he could sit in the throne of God and overthrow God from his throne. And he's still trying to do it. And he will try once more and we will know when that will happen because he will come down here to persecute us because he will fail in trying to take the throne of God right before the great tribulation starts in the, in the last days of this human era. Your heart was lifted up because of your beauty. You became proud. You corrupted your wisdom for the sake of your splendor. As it is. I cast you to the ground. He who exalts himself will be abased. So we have there a clear description. What was the first conflict in the history of the universe was caused by pride. When someone had a higher concept of himself than he ought to have, was a lack of humility. So the one who caused that, God starts the Beatitudes and starts teaching us the way of peace. It's just the opposite. So one who is contrite of spirit. And in, in chapter 66 of Isaiah, God repeats more or less the same thing. I won't go there, but you know what it is. Beautiful description that he will look to whom, to who is poor in spirit. Why, why don't read it? Anyway, so you have there a clear picture how trouble started. How all these things started first before man was created by someone who had, he was lifted up. That's what he says here. He was swollen with leaven. And he thought he was something he was not. And that happens to all of us. That's what he says. Don't correct an arrogant person. Chapter 9 of Proverbs. He will hate you. Correct a humble one or a wise one. He will love you for it. Thank you. You are making me realize I have things to change. Well, I made mistakes I did not realize. That's the key. How do we, I, I include myself. I'm not the best at that. How do, you, how do we react to correction? We are all infected with that thing, brethren. That's what God put that feast over and over to remind us that we have that tendency 
to lift, be lifted up. So let's read in chapter 66 of Isaiah such beautiful words by God that parallel the ones we read in, in chapter 57. Heaven is my throne. Heaven is my throne and earth is my footstool. Where is the house that you will build me? You see, he makes reference again to a dwelling. He wants to dwell intimately with us. If we are willing to go for the way of peace and recognize that we have to repent because we are all guilty of not doing it. And where is the place of my rest for all those things my hand has made and all those things exist, says the Lord. But on this one will I look, on him who is poor and of a contrite spirit and who trembles at my word. There you go. That's what the beginning of the way of peace is someone that can accept correction, someone that has repented from the heart, not someone who still has or wants to have a higher concept of himself. And I'm guilty of that, and I think we're all guilty of that because we have a law that we have assimilated from the prince of the power of the air, and it's leaven. And we have to do leaven every year to, remember, to remind us we have that tendency. So the first trouble, the first problem that disturbed the peace in the universe was caused by pride. When you, when, that's why pride, you need your humility to have peace. The sermonette Mr. Ryan gave, what does it take? That's why I tell you it's the beginning for the way of peace. What does it take to go and tell someone, please forgive me, or I am sorry? It takes humility. And that's what God expects us to do with him and with each other. So there is no humility. There is no way to put to practice what Mr. Ryan did explain to us. And what does it take to forgive someone? So that there is peace. It takes humility. Sometimes it's hard for us to forgive because we have a higher concept that we ought to have. And we think the offense is too big. But it's just an illusion. It's not that big. And whatever it is, we should have that concept of ourselves and be willing to forgive. Otherwise, we are not forgiven. And we will not be teaching the way of peace to the world. There are much more to say about that. But I will leave you with those thoughts, brethren, about the poor in spirit, happy are they because the kingdom of God is theirs, because they are the ones who overcome pride, who are able to be humble before God and humble before each other. And they will rule the world. Today the world is ruled by people that do not know that way of peace and don't want to know it. I would be very surprised if some of these world leaders, I don't want to mention names, they will go and apologize to their enemy and say, I'm sorry. Now they are breaking the treaty about medium-range missiles in Europe. The door is open for prophecy to be fulfilled. Europe will be obliterated by an attack from the East. We know that already. 
prophecy repeats itself. Napoleon was the fifth head of the Roman Empire, of the restoration of the Roman Empire. He was at the peak of his power. He decided it was not enough for him. Pride. So he went against the Russians. And that was the beginning of the end of Napoleon. He invaded in 1812. He abdicated in 1814, two years later. Adolf Hitler and, and Napoleon had a, a treaty, a peace treaty with Alexander I, who was the Tsar in Russia. Then 130 years later, <clears throat> Adolf Hitler had a peace treaty with Stalin. But he thought the Third Reich needed more room, more room for his people. He broke the, 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 the peace treaty of peace and he invaded Russia in 19. 42. By January 1943, his biggest army, it was the Sixth Army, 300,000 men, 123,000 survived when the Russians were able to surround them. When the winter had a big part in it, the Germans never thought that by the winter time, if they invaded in July, they would still be over there. They thought because they applied the blitzkrieg, it would be like, like lightning going and conquering Russia. It was not so. The Russians resisted and were able to surround them and really hammer them with artillery, artillery. And that was the beginning of the end of Adolf Hitler. In January 1943, the Sixth Army, 123,000 survived. They were all made prisoners. And Hitler lost the Sixth Army, 300,000 people. The rest were killed. Two years later was the end of Adolf Hitler. Guess what? The beast is going to do exactly the same thing. They will see that these people in the Orient are not receiving the mark of the beast. The Chinese and the Russians can be self-sufficient. What are they going to do? They will break a peace treaty and they will attack. That's in chapter 9 of Revelation. What they will attack? The kings of the east. And what that will mean? The end of the beast power. They will counter-attack with a nuclear attack. Same story. We know it in advance. What's the root of all of that? Pride. I want to be bigger. I want more. I mean, lost too. Anyway, that's interesting to see how history goes, brethren. So, let's continue here. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. There are many ways to apply this. I have another translation which says, Blessed are those who weep because they will be comforted. In a way, mourning is what it takes. You see, they are, they are linked together, all these beatitudes you are going to see when we speak of peace. They are all linked. When you are poor in spirit, you mourn for your own sins. And that was described wonderfully by James in his epistle in chapter 4. I think you are familiar with this. Chapter 4, it says in verse 7, 
chapter 4, James chapter 4, verse 7. Therefore, submit to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts. We're going to see you need to have a clean heart to walk in the way of peace. You double-minded, lament and mourn and weep for your, let your laughter be turned into mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord and he will lift you up. God resists the proud and gives his grace to the humble. In James chapter 4 and verse 6, it's right here in the book of James, and it's in 1 Peter chapter 5 and verse 5. God resists the proud. He resists Satan. Satan, and we are acting with pride. We are not qualified to teach the way of peace to the world. And he gives his haste. So that's a way to mourn. It's when we repent or when we, yes, when we commit a sin, even after we have been baptized, we mourn before God like David did. And God says, and David says in Psalm 51, I won't go to that one, you know, a contrite spirit you will not despise. And his sin was big. But he humbled himself and God forgave him, although he did not take away the consequences out of love for him. Because we tend to repeat our mistakes if we don't see that, that there are consequences to them. That's the reason why those allow, God allows, and that's another, another study we do some other day, the consequences of sin. God does forgive, but he allows consequences so that we don't repeat it. It's out of love, not because he wants to, to take revenge on us. So let's read at the second. So weep. We already saw that can be repentance, but that can be also to look for God when we are offended, when we are in pain, and we're going to see a beautiful example. It says, so like I mentioned to you, that beatitude are blessed are those that mourn because they will be comforted. It can be translated too. And we can see it, like I, t I told you, I cannot exhaust all the meanings of this. The word of God is alive. Hebrews chapter 4. For they shall be comforted. Let's see an example of someone who whipped. <clears throat> it's a beautiful example, brethren. Let's read a First Samuel chapter 1. First Samuel chapter 1. You will bear with me, I'm going to read this. Now there was a certain man of Ramathaim, Sophim, of the mountains of Ephraim. And his name was Elkanah, the son of Jeroham, the son of Elihu, the son of Tohu, the son of Zuth, an Ephraimite. And he had two wives. The name of one was Hannah, and the name of the other Penina. Penina had children, but Hannah had no children. This man went up from his city yearly to worship and sacrifice to the Lord of hosts in Shiloh. Also, the two sons of Eli, 
Hophni and Phinehas, the priests of the Lord, were there. And whenever the time came for Elkanah to make an offering, he would give portions to Penina, his wife, and to all her sons and daughters. But to Hannah, he would give a double portion. For he loved Hannah, although the Lord had not had closed her womb. And her rival also provoked her severely to make her miserable because the Lord had closed her womb. So it was year by year when she went up to the house of the Lord that the, she provoked her. Therefore, she wept. Here we have it. And did not eat. Then Elkanah, her husband, said to her, Hannah, why do you weep? Why do you not eat? And why is your heart grieved? Am I not better to you than ten sons? So Hannah arose after they had finished eating and drinking in Shiloh. Now Eli, the priest, was sitting on the seat by the doorstop. Door, doorpost of the tabernacle of the Lord. <clears throat> and she was in bitterness of soul and prayed to the Lord and wept in anguish. Then she made a vow and said, O Lord of hosts, if you will indeed look on the affliction of your maid servant and remember me, and not forget your maidservant, but will give your maidservant a male child. Then I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life, and no razor shall come upon his head. And it happened as she continued praying before the Lord that Eli watched her mouth. Now Hannah spoke in her heart and only her lips moved, but her voice was not heard. Therefore, Eli thought she was drunk. So Eli said to her, How long will you be drunk? Put your wine away from you. And Hannah answered and said, No, my Lord, I am a woman of sorrowful spirit. I have drunk neither wine nor intoxicating drink but have poured out my soul before the Lord. Do not consider you, my servant, a wicked woman, for out of the abundance of my complaint and grief I have spoken until now. Then Eli answered and said, Go in peace. Interesting. And the God of Israel grant your petition which you have asked of him. And she said, Let your maidservant find favor in your sight. So the woman went her way and ate, and her face was no longer sad. Just by pouring her heart and her soul before God, she received comfort. That's what the Beatitude says. Blessed are those that weep, because they will be comforted. 
When we weep for our sins, God gives the Holy Spirit, who is a comforter, the paracletos. So those words are perfect, and they apply in these situations. Then they rose early in the morning and, re- and worshipped before the Lord and returned and came to their house at Ramah. And Elkanah knew Hannah, his wife, and the Lord remembered her. So it came to pass in the process of time that Hannah conceived and bore a son and called his name Samuel, saying, Because I have asked for him from the Lord. And you know that since he dedicated him to God, you read in chapter 2, in verse 20 of this same book, First Samuel, And Eli would bless Elkanah when they went to bring Samuel and his wife and say, The Lord give you descendants from this woman for the loan that was lent to the Lord. Then they would go their their own home. They would go to their own home. And the Lord visited Hannah so that she conceived and bore three sons and two daughters. Meanwhile, the child Samuel grew before the Lord. There we see the comfort that God gave. And much more to say about that. How does that apply to us today? Brethren, when we are offended, and Hannah was consistently offended by Penina, but we don't hear in her prayer her asking anything against Penina. She was just asking God to give her a son. What can we learn from that? How often, brethren, when we are offended or we have a struggle, we try to avenge ourselves. We try to return evil for evil. We go against the clear instructions of God. In Romans 12, I won't go there, but you know those scriptures. It says, don't return evil for evil to anyone. Do not avenge yourselves. Give room to the wrath of God. So we are not to pray for someone to be cursed, but we should let give room to God. If we start, we are offended, and we start responding by the dictates of our own human nature and try to set things by our own strength, we are saying to God, you stay there, I take care of myself, and God will teach us a lesson. Okay, go ahead, do it, because we are under a covenant with him. What does God expect from us? Well, it's right here in the Sermon on the Mount, too. And he will take care of things. Sometimes we waste time, brethren. When we are under the terrible pain and frustration because an offense, something went wrong, we were said, we were told things that we didn't want to hear, then we exhaust ourselves in pain. We should take that energy and go immediately to God and pour our hearts like Hannah did and not try to revenge, to return evil for evil. Let's do what God says to do, and he will take care of things. We have an example there. He gave her a son who was an affront for a woman in those days not to have a son, and he gave her five more. I'm sure peace was with Penina. She didn't dare to say anything else. 
God took care of it. She didn't need to fight. She didn't respond. She wept and she went before God. And look at the instructions Christ gives to us today in chapter 5 of the book. The same chapter, chapter 5. Let me see, where is that scripture? In chapter 5, in verse... Forty-three, Chapter 5, verse 43 of the book of Matthew. Let's see how that applies to us and how it applies to the way of peace. Verse 43. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. You find that in the Psalms. David prays, prayed, prayed to God to get rid of his enemies and just cast them into the pit and etc., etc. You know, but that's we are under the new covenant now. And that's still the inspired word of God. But let's see what Christ said in the new covenant, which we are under that covenant. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and you shall hate your, your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies. Bless those who curse you. If we don't waste time trying to set things on our own ways, and we go straight to God and find a room somewhere, kneel down and pour our hearts before God, because sometimes we are offended in an unjust manner, sometimes we are guilty of it too, but if we pour our hearts, what are we doing? He says, bless those who curse you. Do good to those who hate you do good. And then that's in the Proverbs. The Apostle Paul quotes that in Romans 12. He says, if your enemy is thirsty, give him water. If he is hungry, give him bread. And you will, he says, you will put like, how does he say that? I don't remember exactly. Uh, fire on his head. I mean, remorse will come. This person is returning good for evil. That's, I tell you, that's one of the things that People are more surprised in this world where they receive good for evil. And we are commanded to do so. Bless those who curse you. Do good to those who hate you and pray for those who spitefully use you and persecute you. I tell you, brethren, when we do that, all these horrible frustrations that we feel inside, if we don't take advantage of that energy, which is negative, and we turn it into smoke that goes up to God in prayer, praying for people that offended us, we burn them up, and we are freed from the frustration, and we give room to God to intervene and take care of things. We don't get in the way. That's what Christ is teaching us here, and we can learn from Hannah's prayer. She poured her heart before God. She didn't went and tried to take revenge on Penina, we are commanded today to do exactly the same thing. I confess to you, I have not always done that. I'm learning. But if you go with all that pain inside that she was, in great pain, and were offended unjust, in an unjust manner, God says, go and pray for those that have caused you that situation. Pray for them. If we do it, it's an amazing result. Why? 
because you are doing exactly what Christ tells us to do, and he will intervene. He will take care of the situation, and we will be freed of our frustration because we will turn it into incense, and we will be burnt. There's no psychologist that's going to advise that to a patient when he's been offended or in many ways or abused or even raped. There's nothing you can do after those things have been done to us. You cannot reverse events. You cannot go back in time. God says what to do. He will heal our hearts like he healed and will be comforted. And he will take care of things in a miraculous way. There is way of peace. We don't create one more conflict. We bring it to God. He takes care of it. That's another chapter of the way of peace. Are we practicing that? I'm asking the question for myself too, my dear brethren. It's effective. It works. But it takes sometimes years for us to understand that's what Christ is commanded uh, has commanded, commanded us to do. Let's go to the next one. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. What's a meek person? Like I said to you, brethren, today we're trying to find practical ways to apply the way of peace in our lives, which the world does not know. The world, how do they react when they're offended? Like in the previous beatitude, take things in their own hands. They don't go to God to take care of things. It requires faith and conviction. And when we see the results, we will be amazed. Like in the case of Hannah, that's where it's good to read that thing. It says, blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. What's a meek person? Christ himself said, learn from me, who am meek and lowly. So that means that Christ is God, and God is humble. We have to learn to have the character of God in ourselves, to be able to walk in the way of peace and teach the world. Take my yoke upon you. That's 11.29 of the book of Matthew. Take my yoke upon you. And learn from me, for I am gentle, and other translations have meek, and lowly in heart, humble. You see, those are conditions for the way of peace. That's why he's called the Prince of Peace. He's our living example. And you will find rest for your souls. We'll feel liberated of this terrible burden when we turn it into prayer. In two instances, we burn it in the presence of God. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. So Christ is his own example. So when he, he says he is meek, what does that mean? He is God. That's part of his character. I think we can find, in a way, that meaning in chapter 34 of the book of Exodus, where he manifests himself to Moses. He said, I will proclaim my name. That means I will proclaim who I am, how I am, my character that defines me. It's not just a sound. It's his own character. Let's look at chapter 34 
of the book of Exodus. In verse 6, 34, verse 6. And the Lord passed before him, before Moses, and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, that means the eternal, the eternal, good, merciful, and gracious, long-suffering, that means meek, and abounding in goodness and truth. Long-suffering means also slow to anger. How can we apply that in our daily lives? Let's look at the book of Proverbs, my dear brethren. We'll see a few Proverbs that will help us to learn how to be meek like Christ is meek, and how to be in our way to learn by practice what we're going to teach in tomorrow's world. So let's read the book of Proverbs. You can go, my friends, to... Let's see. Verse chapter 12 and verse 16 of the book of Proverbs. Chapter 12 and verse 16. A fool's wrath is known at once. That is the opposite of being meek. We're trying to find how those apply. Here it is described. A fool's wrath is known at once. That means he's reactive. Something happens and wow, he rebounds. A person like that is not apt to be a ruler in tomorrow's world and to be slow to anger like God is, long-suffering like he is with us now. A fool's wrath is known at once, but a prudent man covers shame. Oh, this translation is good. What it really means is ignores an offense. That's much more clear. When you say cover shame, doesn't mean much. That means if we are offended by an insult or something, he says a prudent man ignores it. He lets it go. He, is, he doesn't grab it, and I'm going to respond to it. You know, let's look to a few others, and you will we'll have the picture very quickly. So we are talking about the way of peace. And being meek is the third element. We saw humility. We saw and we, when we weep. And now we are seeing practical applications of meekness. He says in chapter 14 of the Proverbs, verse 29, He who is slow to wrath, that's a characteristic of God himself. Thanks to that, we are all alive here today, my dear brethren. If God were not that way, I wouldn't be here. I tell you, I know that for a fact. He who is slow to wrath has great understanding. But he who is impulsive exalts folly. You know, there are people that have great success in writing books. They take a biblical concept who is explained in biblical terms, and they create another definition with other words that people do not recognize as coming from the Bible. And they write books about it. There is a concept now, based on this, that the top executives 
in this country and many other countries pay to go and be lectured by someone who explains to them what does it mean to be slow to wrath. You know what the term they use? Emotional intelligence. And it's very successful out in the world. Because it says, but he who is impulsive exalts folly. If an executive, a CEO of a company, is he hasn't, he's not slow to wrath. He's going to create a lot of problems in that company. He will probably never be a CEO. So they, they call that emotional intelligence. That means the spirit rules the emotions. And they have books written about that. And they find it's an indispensable element for a successful executive. He has to be slow to wrath. When something happens, an event, he will keep it cool. He will analyze the situation. He will take counsel. He will make a wise decision. He will, he will not be impulsive. He has emotional intelligence. That's the fruit of the spirit called self-control, my dear brethren. And we are now here learning how to rule the world, and we need emotional intelligence, which means to be meek, slow to anger, take time, Let's, let's look at a few others. He says here, for example, in chapter 16 and verse 32, He who is slow to anger is better than the mighty. God wants you the mighty, Alexander the Great and Julius Caesar and Napoleon. They were impulsive people. They made many foolish things because of that. He who is slow to anger, I am reading Proverbs 16, verse 32, is better than the mighty, and he who rules his spirit than he who takes a city. That's what God is looking for. People that rules their, rule their spirit, who have emotional intelligence, in other words, that are meek like Jesus Christ. And they will inherit the world because they are being qualified to be patient with people, to be slow to react, and to take a wise decision, not an impulsive one. We should be practicing this day by day. That's why our manual tells us. Let's read a few others, because there are quite a few. Chapter 19, verse 11. The discretion of a man makes him slow to anger, and it is his glory to overlook a transgression. If we are insulted, if we grab that insult and want to hit back right away, we are not learning this, brethren. The best thing is to overlook it and not to start it. And there are many other of those. Why read another one. Chapter 20, verse 3 of Proverbs. It is honorable for a man to stop striving since any fool can start a quarrel. So, those are essential elements to have peace and to teach the world what they do not know. And we should know it and be practicing it right now. I go to the next one, and you, much more can be said, but those are practical, practical ways to apply the way of life. 
and the principles for rulers, for kings of peace that will rule the world tomorrow. We'll be the executives and we'll need to learn emotional intelligence. Let's continue here in Matthew chapter 5. Wow. Let's see, brethren. I lose my part here. Matthew chapter 5, it goes to the next one. So it, the leaders in the world were meek. They would sit down and consider and, you know, and talk about things like we should do. If we cannot do that, brethren, now, right now, we are not faithful in what is little, how will be committed to rule several cities or rule the world tomorrow? The next one says, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be filled. You know, the effect of righteousness is peace. Whenever people obey the laws of God, there is peace. For example, I ask you to read, let's go here, Isaiah 32. It's a beautiful scripture. That explains that, and we will, we will try to, to explain why. Chapter 32 of Isaiah, we read this sometimes at the Feast of Tabernacles, in verse 16. Chapter 32, verse 16. The justice will dwell in the wilderness, and righteousness remain in the fruitful field. The work of righteousness will be peace. I have a better translation that says the effect of righteousness will be peace. A righteous man is humble. A righteous man is meek. He has the fruits of the Spirit. A righteous man has all these elements we're trying to understand today. He says the work, and I like better to say the effect. There is a cause. There's an effect. The effect of righteousness will be peace. And let's read the following verses. And the effect, oh, here it is. I was misjudging the translators of the New King James. I'm sorry. I apologize. (laughs) And the effect of righteousness, quietness, and assurance forever. That's why the kingdom will be given to the saints, because they are righteous, and will be never be given to another people. You remember the statue of the image of Nebuchadnezzar? Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greco-Macedonia, and Rome. It, was, it changed from, time, from era to era, to different hands. And the fifth kingdom will be given to the saints. It will never be given to another people because they will produce righteousness. They would produce peace. So, and the effect of righteousness, quietness, and assurance forever. My people will dwell in peaceful habitation, in secure dwelling, and in quiet resting places. That's tomorrow's world, brethren. I'm sorry, but I couldn't finish this. I have a more example. Blessed are the peacemakers. So those are the ones who ask for forgiveness. Christ said, you remember they have something against you, you, God will not accept an offering or a prayer from us if we have not asked for forgiveness when we know we have offended someone. That's how he teaches us 
the way of peace.